in an experiment. Okay. Why is light so fast? Like it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speak. I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, how the universe's cosmic fog was cleared, an epigenetic way to control cholesterol, and how humans lost their tails. I'm Nick Petrichow. Astronomers looking at the universe today can see stars and galaxies from millions of miles away, as light from them floods their telescopes. But in the long history of the universe, this hasn't always been possible. First, because there were no stars, but later because the universe was filled with a cosmic fog. Neutral hydrogen that let through visible light, but blocked other wavelengths. Obviously, that's no longer the case, but how exactly the universe emerged from this cosmic dark ages has been a matter of debate. Around 13 billion years ago, not long after the Big Bang, ionising radiation started to re-ionise the neutral hydrogen, clearing the fog. But the source of that radiation is unclear. A new paper in Nature, though, may clear up this issue, as it has identified a likely culprit of the reionization. Reporter Lizzie Gibney caught up with one of the paper's authors, Hakim Atek, to chat about the discovery. She started by asking him what the different theories are for reionization. We had many hypotheses. So one of them was supermassive black holes that could emit strong radiation that would be able to reionize the universe. The problem is that those supermassive black holes are not numerous enough to produce enough radiation. So the second most plausible explanation or sources would be galaxies that form stars at early epochs and could emit enough radiation to reionize the universe. These were uh, the two main candidates And your team has been trying to help shine some light on this debate. What have you been doing? How have you been trying to look back into this period of the universe's history? So, so far, what we have been doing is getting imaging of these galaxies to try to determine if galaxies are the actual responsible for cosmic reionization. So our team, what we have done here is combine the uh, James Webb Space Telescope with gravitational lenses. So thanks to this combination, we can actually detect and characterize the faintest galaxies ever observed at this epoch of reionization. And what is it that the JWST telescope can see that others haven't been able to see before? So the James Webb Space Telescope is the most powerful telescope ever built. It's essentially designed to peer into the early universe to uncover the formation of the first galaxies and this famous epoch of reionization. And you're looking at some really faint galaxies that are out there and you use a technique called gravitational lensing. Does that does that boost the light that we're getting from these galaxies? Exactly. So uh, this phenomenon is created by massive structures. So here we use massive galaxies. It's a cluster of massive galaxies that will uh, curve space-time 
and it will act as a magnifying lens so we can amplify the light of the distant sources which would be undetectable even with the JWST without using this gravitational lensing effect. So we can finally look at the radiation that's coming off these very faint, very early galaxies. And what did you find? What we found is that despite their size, these tiny faint galaxies are actually very efficient producing ionizing radiation. And the amount of radiation they emit is about four times the value assumed for massive galaxies. And the assumption was that faint galaxies would be like massive galaxies. It turns out they are not. They are much more efficient at producing ionizing radiation than we have thought. So if we have enough of these faint galaxies, cumulatively, we'll be able to produce enough of this ionizing radiation to to dissipate the cosmic fog by themselves? Yes. So in this exact study, we also confirmed the number of these faintest galaxies, which is very high. So in we combine the number density of these galaxies and their ionizing power. So we end up with enough ionizing budget to reionize the universe. So it sounds like instead of there being just a few big explosions of radiation clearing out the fog, it's like you've got loads of little candles everywhere and that's doing this ionizing job and getting rid of the neutral hydrogen to to make a universe that we can peer through. Exactly. So it's the uh, little tiny galaxies that by their numbers, actually outshine the big galaxies. And are you making any assumptions to come to this conclusion? Totally. I think the big assumption here is that the small area we're observing is representative of the large-scale distribution of galaxies in the entire universe. And to do that, we also estimate the uncertainties that come from what we call cosmic variance. So with some simulations, we can extrapolate to the rest of the universe and see how a small variation can affect our results. And how does this finding of where the radiation came from that reionized the universe, how does that change our picture of this period in the universe's time? Are we learning anything new about what was going on or, or what happened afterwards? So in addition to pinpoint the exact sources of reionization, it also has different implications on galaxy formation. For instance, because low-mass galaxies are more evenly distributed as a massive once in the early universe, the exact sources of reionization will also shape the global temperature of the gas in the universe, which means the cosmic web of the universe will emerge and form the structures we see today. So this reionization process actually helped shift or form the structures that we still see in the universe? Yes, exactly. What's next for you and your team? Is this an area that you're going to keep studying? I think now that we are starting to uncover these ultra-faint galaxies, the question is how faint we can go and still find galaxies at early times because there is theoretical limit of the smallest galaxy that can form stars at cosmic dawn. So we now will have the possibility to directly test our theories and we have upcoming large programs to do just that. And you mentioned right at the start that some astronomers think that it's actually the matter being drawn into these supermassive black holes, isn't it, that create radiation. Um, some people think that it's those that created this ionizing radiation. Is this going to be a controversial paper or do you think people will still stick to their guns and be in the supermassive black hole corner? I think we'll have some part of the community that will still advocate for this uh, solution. But if they do, then we will have too much ionizing radiation in the early universe, which will have uh, certain implications also on the growth of structures in the universe 
and how the helium reionization occurs, which is the second most abundant element in the universe. So if you have too much radiation, you will ionize that element too quickly, too early in the universe. And uh, the James Webb Space Telescope is still also telling us about the number of these supermassive black holes in the early universe. And so far, there are not enough out there to reionize the universe. So the evidence is leaning in your favour? We hope so. That was Hakim Atek from the Astrophysics Institute in Paris, in France. For more clarity on this discovery, check out the show notes for a link to the paper. And coming up, we'll be talking about a possible epigenetic way to control cholesterol. Right now, though, it's time for the research highlights with Dan Fox. Inscriptions carved on a bronze hand over 2,000 years old might be the earliest written example of the language that eventually became modern Basque. Basque is one of the oldest living languages and is thought to have descended from a language spoken by the Bascones, an Iron Age people who inhabited parts of northern Spain before the arrival of the Romans. Researchers analysed inscriptions on a hand-shaped bronze plate that was unearthed from an ancient Basconic village. They found that one of the inscribed words is similar to a Basque word meaning of good fortune, and the inscriptions and design suggest that the hand was dedicated to a deity of fortune and used as a good luck charm. Archaeologists have long thought that the Bascones lacked a writing system other than that used on coins, but the findings show that these ancestors of modern Basque people already knew and used writing in the 1st century BC. Read more about that research in antiquity. Researchers have used lasers to etch a groove into an unexpected surface. Soap film. Soap films are thin layers of liquid sandwiched between walls of detergent molecules or micelles. When a film is stretched or perturbed, any excess micelles in the liquid layer rush to reinforce the wall of the film, quickly restoring its smooth surface. But now researchers have found that if they increase the moving soap film's detergent concentration beyond a critical point, they could carve long-lasting grooves into its surface using a laser. That's because the high quantities of micelles reduced the film's elasticity, preventing its surface from recovering. The laser pulses created a series of pits in the film which elongated as the film flowed, creating etchings that resembled dashed lines each less than a millimetre long. You can read that research in full in Physical Review Fluids. High cholesterol affects millions of people worldwide, increasing their risk of heart disease. To reduce cholesterol, many people take statins, But these drugs have to be taken every single day, which can be a burden. But maybe that won't always be the case. A new paper in Nature shows a step towards making a single treatment which could reduce cholesterol forever by tweaking epigenetics. Epigenetics in general terms refers to the regulation of gene expression, but does not change the DNA sequence itself. Instead, epigenetic changes are controlled by things like methyl groups being added to DNA and can increase or decrease the expression of genes. 
Researchers are hoping to take advantage of this by using pharmaceutical interventions that contain molecules known as epigenetic effectors, which influence genetic expression. In this case, silencing a particular gene that can cause disease. Now, this has been shown to work well in cells in a dish. So, in the new paper, the team were interested to see if it would work in a full-fledged living organism. Their target was PCSK9, a gene that's been linked to high cholesterol. I caught up with one of the authors, Angelo Lombardo, and asked him why the team picked this particular gene. Well, PCSK9 is a model gene, actually. It's been used since uh, quite many years, actually. So it's a well-known gene that needs to be shut off to decrease the level of cholesterol in the blood. So that was a very, uh, let's say, nice and convenient uh, gene to target for this specific proof of principle experiments in which actually the biggest question was, is the epigenetic uh, technology that we are using sufficient and enough no, to silence a gene in a, in a living organism for a long period of time? And in this paper, you tried to do this silencing in a mouse model. What was your approach? Well, the approach is well similar to COVID vaccine. So we exploited lipid nanoparticles to encapsulate messenger RNA that codify for these uh, epigenetic effectors and injected them into mice. So we're not discussing about or talking about vaccination in this specific case, but we're talking about uh, transient expression in the liver, which is the organ uh, target in this specific case to, to silence PCSK9, transient expression of this epigenetic effector. As you said, you were trying to see if you could get sort of long-term silencing or less expression of that particular gene. How successful were you in that? We were quite successful, actually. We can achieve a significant level of reduction of PCSK9. The level of reduction that we achieved uh, were also linked to the delivery that we use, in this case, on the specific lipid nanoparticle that we, that we use in our study. We haven't yet reached 100% of repression. We are confident that uh, playing with the delivery, with the particles that, that we use, we can uh, further increase these efficiencies. And in the paper, you were able to show that this sort of epigenetic silence in this repression of the genes happened for a whole year for the mice. But, you know, I would have thought that as cells divide, maybe they wouldn't have these epigenetic marks on them still. So did you need to, like, reapply this at any point or was this just a case of one and done? Well, in this study, not only we follow the mice for one year, but you also perform a surgical procedure which actually activates liver proliferation. You know, liver is a highly regenerative organ when damaged, and, and this regeneration implies a significant proliferation of liver hepatocytes. And also in that specific experimental context, actually, the epigenetic silencing remains stable, but indicating really that the epigenetic modification imposed by the technology were indeed irritable. So you hit once, the cells memorize that you silence the gene and this memory remains also to the daughter cells. And so you showed this occurred for a year, but do you suspect that this would last much longer than that? That's the hope, of course. Actually, the epigenetic uh, proteins that we use in our uh, editors, they do come from a complex of protein which is active early during embryogenesis. And these complex of proteins silence endogenous retroelements or retroviruses, which are spread throughout our genome. And the silence imposed early during development, in the first, let's say, moment of life, weeks, if not months of life, 
these epigenetic informations are then propagated throughout the entire life of the individual. So I think that's a, a, an interesting you know, uh, parallelism you know, with our technology, and hopefully also our technology will, will do the very same. So hit once, and then for the entire life of an individual, the gene will be off. What do you think that this shows is possible? I think that's the first time, to our knowledge at least, that someone showed that this transient expression of these proteins is sufficient to impose long-lasting you know, and efficient epigenetic science. So that opens basically the possibility of using the platform more broadly than before. And before was a proof of principle of the activity of the platform in cell lines. So now that we have indication that this platform can work also in, in vivo, open up you know, many, many different uh, possibilities. Mm. And obviously in this study, you looked at this gene that's associated with cholesterol. Like a lot of people use statins in order to control their cholesterol levels. Could this be an alternative to that? Yes, it might well be. So, well, the advantage here uh, is that it's a single treatment, it's a one and done treatment. So single treatment, instead of taking pills every day, you make a single treatment and, and you achieve a long term reduction of PCSK9 and hence you no know, reduction of your blood cholesterol. But there are also other editing technology that are similar to, to this, so can inactivate the gene stably, like for instance gene editing, you no, know, by, by conventional CRISPR-Cas. An advantage of our technology is that we are not uh, cleaving the DNA. So gene ed- genome editing acts on the primary DNA sequence by cleaving the double-strand helix of the DNA. This cleavage of the double-strand helix may come with some uh, potential no, adverse events, uh, outcomes that uh, probably our technology may solve. There is another advantage actually in our technology that there is a potential to revert eventually these uh, epigenetic marks that we deposed. So epigenetics can be deposed and then also eventually reverted, sort of antidote eventually. What might we need to do now in order to make this a reality to be used in treatment? This is a mouse study. What do we need to do to sort of scale it up to be used in humans? Well, first of all, we need to identify effective and safe reagents to silence the human gene. We are still dealing with species-specific reagents. The ones that we have used have been designed to recognize the mouse genome so we need to identify and develop now reagents that can do the very same in the human genome and then try to scale up the process uh, to move first eventually in, in other animal models, bigger animal models, again, to test efficacy and safety and eventually in human beings. That was Angelo Lombardo from the San Rafaele Telephone Institute for Gene Therapy in Italy. For more on that story, check out a link to the paper in the show notes. Finally on the show, where's my tail? This is a question that a researcher asked as a child that prompted some research, now being published in Nature, into the genetic changes that led to humans and other apes losing their tails. Reporter Ewan Calloway has been reporting this story and he joins me now. Ewan, hi, how's it going? It's good. Glad to be back on the podcast. It's been a while. We should have you on more often. So as I mentioned in my introduction, this is a bit of research about the genetic things that went on that caused loss of tails in apes and humans. And this has been something that's kind of been on the mind of one of the researchers involved for quite a while, right? Yeah, yeah. The lead author of this paper, Bo Shia, you know, he told me that it's something he kind of wondered about as a kid. Why don't I have a tail? That's how I kick off my story. And he kind of maybe forgot about it until he had a, a coccyx injury. The coccyx is our vestigial tail. And, you know, that 
shifted his PhD work and he decided to try and figure out the genetic basis for why humans and other apes don't have tails. <laughs> so an injury to what's left of our tail made him wonder about that. And so where did he start? Where did the team start when they were looking at this? Well, there's two answers to that. If you read the paper, they came up with a long list of genes that were linked to tail loss in different animals, mostly mice, and then you know looked for things that distinguished tailless apes from monkeys with tails. What really happened though, was there's this really famous gene. It was initially called T. It's called TBXT now that was in the 20s before we really knew what genes were linked to tail loss in mice. And, you know, we've known for ages that if you delete this gene or muck with it, you can get tail loss. And so what the authors did was they just looked in a genetic databases and found that humans and apes, primates that don't have tails, have this kind of genetic insertion in a portion of this gene that monkeys, the relatives that do have tails, don't. And so they started doing some experiments to explore this. And so I guess the idea is that if you muck about with this gene in the correct way, with this particular insertion, you'll end up with something happening to the tail. And they were looking at this in mice, right? What did they find? Yeah, it's it's quite a lot of mucking about. It's a really, (laughs) it's a complicated old mechanism. So hold on to your seats. We'll we'll try and get our way through this. I mean, the insertion is something, it's called an ALU element, A-L-U, that these little short things that are peppered across the genomes of primates only primates, and mostly they do nothing. In this case, this ALU element 25 million years ago or so landed in a region of the genome in the ancestor of apes that seems to lead to a shortened version of this T gene or this T protein that was identified back in the 20s. And so the researchers theorized that this shortened version alongside a regular length version, so you've got both, does something in development that leads to shortened tails. They tried to replicate it in mice. They got some mice with weird tails. Some had long tails, some had kink tails. They did some more models and eventually ended up with mice with a different insertion, but one that tried to mimic what humans and apes had. And lo and behold, you hit the right combination. They didn't have tails. And so that led them to conclude that this insertion in this gene contributed to tail loss in apes. It might have not been the whole story, but it probably played a role. I mean, and you made it sound there like relatively straightforward, but as I understand, this was a preprint a couple of years ago, and it's been quite a long journey for them to get from there to now the Nature paper. Yeah, yeah. Back in 2021, which is when I, when I was last on the podcast, it's been more recent <laughs> than that, but when we were all knee-deep in COVID and we had CoronaPod and reporters were covering preprints a lot, this thing bopped on the bioarchive about, you know, explaining tail loss and just, you know, caught like wildfire. It got a lot of attention. And then three years later, the paper comes out. And so I kind of asked, you know, what what changed? And it turns out, you know, a lot more mouse work really hammering home the mechanism, the explanation for why this little insertion leads to a shortened protein that leads to loss of tail in mice. So there's a lot of extra mouse work, a lot of crispering happened in those three years. And are researchers kind of convinced that this is a key part of the story then? I define convinced and key. Now, I mean, um, I spoke with one person who named themselves as a reviewer of the paper, and it was somebody who was really asking for this extra mouse work. And he's convinced that this change was important. He doesn't think it was the only one, you know. That's probably not how evolution of, of big traits works. But I think he, he was pretty convinced that they made a good case that this played a role. And you mentioned that there were maybe many other genes that are involved in this. This is probably not the thing that happened. So what's sort of next in our understanding of how we lost our tails? <laughs> that, that hot topic of research. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I'm not sure if the researchers are necessarily following up on 
this, but one interesting thing is that humans and other apes aren't the only primates that have lost their tails. And there are these creatures called lorises. They have big eyes because they're nocturnal, really funny-looking creatures. They don't have tails. Some macaques don't have tails. Mandrels don't have tails. So, you know, as we get more and better genomes of these tailless primates, we could start looking for the genetic basis of those. I think the authors, I think they looked in the case of macaques and didn't find an obvious answer in this T gene. So it, it might lie elsewhere. What might this mean then, identifying this gene? What could it mean for our sort of understanding of our tailless lives? Yeah, there's a couple things to say here. One thing this could link back to is that these mice that had some of these mutations that they spent so many years engineering had developmental defects that are similar to a condition called spinal bifida in humans. So there's the possibility that by losing our tails, which maybe provided some benefit, maybe not, we've ended up at risk for this genetic condition. And the other thing I think, you know, worth talking about, I'm not sure if we have an answer, is, is why did we lose our tails? The assumption is, is that, you know, everything that happens in evolution is for a reason. The instinct is to say it must have provided some benefit. There's some, you know, argument that maybe it contributed to walking upright on two limbs. Maybe it helped us to live, you know, down on the ground, not in the trees like primates. But people have pointed out to me that the bipedality and, you know, our terrestrial lifestyle happened a long time, millions of years after we lost our tails. And so one possibility is that it just happened by chance and, and it stuck like so much of evolution. We really don't know. And I'm not sure this is really a knowable thing. Oh, I guess the idea that this gene is involved in tail loss stands on its own two feet. But maybe the bipedalism question can be put to one side for now. But I think that's all we've got time for. So thank you so much, Ian, for joining me. You're very welcome. Thanks. And that's also all the time we've got for the show this week. We'll be back next week with more news from the world of science. In the meantime, if you want to keep in touch, you can. We're on X at Nature Podcast, or you can send an email to podcast at nature.com. I've been Nick Petridge-Howe. Thanks for listening. <laughs>